reading of the gospel this morning is found in Philippians chapter 2. One through four. That's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of God. Here Paul writes So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of one mind, having the same love, being in full accord. Do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The best way for us to promote unity, to promote encouragement, comfort, sharing, love within the church, is by promoting and pursuing genuine unity of the Spirit. When we make genuine unity of the Spirit our priority, we begin to experience the kind of relationships and spiritual growth that Christ victoriously purchased for his church. However, to see such unity among us, we must also be willing to put away our own ambitions and conceits and pursue instead the glory of God and the greater good of Christ. Let us pray for the grace to prioritize the needs and the interests of others above our own. And may we praise Christ above all. Now, if you'll turn in your bulletins that section entitled, If We Confess Our Faith, we're working our way through the questions and answers found in the Baptist Catechism. And I will read aloud the Catechism questions, and then we, as a congregation, will read aloud the answers. So I'm reading from the bulletin this morning. Question 33. How does the Holy Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? Answer. The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us Christ in our effectual calling. Question 34. What is an effectual calling? Answer. The effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit. Whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the gospel. And as we prepare to receive the word of God now, please take a We'll sing hymn number 713, hymn 713, that's five weeks ago. So the computer's going to play five times through. We're just going to come in on the first verse and repeat the last one. Join me when you are able. Thank you. 
Come now to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning the book of 1 Peter and the fourth chapter. The book of 1 Peter and the fourth chapter. I'll be reading and then preaching this morning on verses 7 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. And I encourage you to read along silently as I read aloud. These verses. Hear the 
beginning in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7, Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your kind providence in bringing us here today hear your word proclaimed and explained. We would ask now for the work of the Holy Spirit, that you would be our guide, that you would grant us an understanding of this text, help us to apply it to our own lives and circumstances in such a way that our own thinking is transformed, our conduct is renewed, we desire with all of our heart to serve and to adore the Lord Jesus Christ. So bless us now through the work of your Spirit, for we ask these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Amen. This morning we come again to 1 Peter chapter 4. And our focus now is on a series of practical exhortations that Peter gives us in light of what he has been setting forth already. That being that we are not only to follow Christ on the path of suffering, which God has appointed for us, but we are also to be Christ's life. As we suffer, not only follow him, but be Christ's life as we suffer. For Christ, if you recall from 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, not only suffered for us, leaving us an example that we might follow in his steps, but Christ also calls us to suffer in a way that shows our own willingness, yes, our own sincere commitment to live God honoring and righteous lives. In fact, last Sunday, when we looked at the first six verses of this fourth chapter of 1 Peter, chapter 4, we saw that we are not only to arm ourselves with the same mind that Christ possessed through his sufferings, but we are also to live for the rest of our time on this earth, for the rest of our earthly sojourn, for the will of God. For the will of God and not for the demands of our own flesh. We are not in conformity to our flesh demands, but the will that God has laid up for us in work. And so as we willingly choose God's appointed path of suffering, a path that is not necessarily an easy path, but not a path of sinfulness and debauchery, we are to delight in our Father's will, just as Jesus delighted in his Father's will. We are to walk on this path of suffering, knowing that God's will is best for us. Knowing that whatever my God ordains is right. Even if it involves suffering and hardship. Knowing that whatever unfolds in our lives, whatever unfolds for us on this journey of grace, God's sustaining grace will always be available and always be sufficient for us. Do you believe that? I trust that you do. His grace will always be available. His grace will always be sufficient. So we can endure, we can prevail under suffering 
being assured that our good God is in control, being completely confident, completely assured that His divine plan is unfolding just as He decreed that it would. There's great comfort in knowing that. That everything is unfolding exactly according to God's control. Now I want us to notice here in verse 7, at the beginning of our sermon text this morning, that Peter goes a step further and he reveals that not only are all things unfolding just as God the Father has commanded that they be unfolded, but the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Meaning what? Meaning that the deliverance of God is coming. The deliverance of God is coming. For this reference to the end, I believe, in this particular context, is an actual reference to the end of their sufferings. That's the context of this book. Their sufferings. The end is the end of their sufferings. A reference to that time, yes, even to that day, when God would deliver them ultimately and finally from their persecutors and their oppressions. And of course, that day when the sufferings of God's people will come to an end, that day when all the things that Christians are enduring for Christ's sake will be over, is the day of Christ's coming. Day of Christ's coming. For on that day, the persecuted people of God will have their deliverance. On that day, we shall know God's relief. God's full relief. In fact, over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to read it in just a moment here. The Apostle Paul wrote to other believers who were suffering and waiting also of the blessings of Christ's coming deliverance. This is a theme that's found throughout the epistles of the New Testament. For Paul wrote, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Notice that theme there. Suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you, notice that, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. That's when the relief comes. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. For they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you that was believed. And so a day is coming in which God will inflict wrath vengeance on some, while he also brings his deliverance and his relief to others. And because we as believers are the ones who will be delivered, because we are the ones who will be relieved from our earthly sufferings on that day, we should take heart. We should take heart. God has appointed an end to our sufferings, and the end to our sufferings will ultimately and finally be experienced when Jesus is revealed from heaven. Therefore, as we find ourselves sustained by God's grace under suffering today, 
we should remember that our final relief is not far off. Hear that. Our final relief is not far off. In fact, Peter states here, returning to our text, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, he says, it is at hand. It is at hand. It is almost within our grasp. And our Savior can be trusted. He can be counted upon to deliver this final relief soon, for he brings it with him. So as we suffer affliction and opposition today, we, we do so with the assurance that our sufferings are a part of God's glorious purpose for us, and we are to do so with the confidence that deliverance is not far from us. It's not far, and these spiritual realities should keep us from faltering under pressure. Not only this, but Peter goes on here at the rest of our text this morning to strengthen the reality that the end is at hand and that Jesus Christ is our relief, should also add spiritual strength to our resolve to possess spiritual steadiness. Our resolve to possess spiritual steadiness. These truths that we're considering should motivate us to keep up those activities that bless and edify Christ's church. For until we are delivered, until Christ comes and we are relieved from suffering and opposition completely, you and I are to remain steady in service. Mm -hmm. Steady in service and continue in prayer. And we are to excel, as you'll see this morning, in love and care for one another. So what are we to be doing as we're waiting for this relief to come? Certainly not sitting around complaining. Certainly not sitting around feeling sorry for ourselves. Steady in service. We are to continue in prayer. We are to accept in love. <laughs> and of course, Peter addresses our first responsibility to remain steady and prayerful here in the rest of verse uh, 7 of 1 Peter chapter 4. For Peter writes, Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Notice, for the sake of your prayers. No doubt Peter mentions our need for this evidence of spiritual steadiness or steadfastness for two reasons. First, Peter appeals here in verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 4 for Self-control, notice that, for self-control, because the one thing that should characterize a person who truly lives under the power of the gospel is self-control. I want you to think about it. If the gospel brings anything into our lives, it brings self-control. When we were living in the flesh, when our lives were not controlled by the power of the gospel, we were not self-controlled. We were not under control. We were certainly kicking against the bricks. We were not following God's leadership. In fact, Peter describes the unbelieving Gentiles verses 3 and 4 of this chapter. He described them as those who had no self-control whatsoever. Living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and debauchery. And so it would make sense for the Apostle Peter to stress here again that a true believer who lives 
in anticipation that Christ will come is one who strives by God's enabling to control his perverse flesh and passions. The one who desires to live in anticipation of Christ's coming is one who desires to live for God's will rather than under sin's control. And yet while Peter does characterize a believer in this chapter as one who exercises self-control, as one who ceases from sin in verse 1, I'm convinced that Peter's mentioning of self-control here in verse 7 in this context of steadiness and steadfastness mostly refers specifically to a believer's responsibility to live his or her life without fear. To live his or her life without emotional distress. You have to think about the larger picture of this epistle this morning to understand this nuance, but I think it's really here. For oftentimes, when we are called upon to suffer and the end doesn't seem near to us, we can become distressed. We can become distressed in our thoughts, our hearts can be given over to fear. In fact, those who persecute and oppress us often try to exploit our fears during times like this, given that we are especially vulnerable to the emotion of fear during times of intense and prolonged suffering. Is that not true? When we experience the weight of suffering for quite some time, we we find ourselves becoming more and more weakened. We find ourselves becoming more and more vulnerable. Therefore, it seems to me that Peter's appeal for self-control here is for that fearless spirit that God himself gives, which is a mark of spiritual control, that fearless spirit. In fact, the Apostle Paul referred to this spirit when he spoke to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 7, for Paul wrote to Timothy who had feelings of fearfulness and timidity. These words, God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and suffering. Therefore, brethren, while we are suffering, while we are waiting for our final relief and deliverance to come, let us not be given over to fear. That's the message here. Let us not be given over to fear. Let us not be intimidated. Let us not allow our fears and our emotions to run away with us or to lead us down the path of despair. But rather let us be self-controlled. As Peter states here in verse 7, let us yield to the control of the Holy Spirit who creates self-control in us. For as we suffer, as we wait in faith for the Lord Jesus Christ to come and to deliver us from our sufferings, we should have all of our fears under God's control. We should, by God's great grace and enabling, live in faith rather than in fear. That's the idea. Let's be self-controlled. Yes, that refers to behavior. Yes, that refers to not living a life of sin. But in this context, I do believe, as I've stressed, it refers to living in that fearless spirit that the Spirit of God gives us, that all things are in control. Then secondly, not only should our emotions be under control, but our, but our minds 
should be under control. Our minds should be under control. Our minds should be steady and under control. Peter states here in verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 4 that we should be sober-minded. Notice that, sober-minded. Or in this context, we might translate this clear-minded. Maybe that's a phrase that we would understand better in our current culture. When we think of sober-minded, we think not strong. Certainly that's an application, but maybe we would better understand this as being clear-minded. Having a clear mind, or we could simply translate this idea here as spiritually minded. For what Peter is saying here is that just as our emotions need to be under the control of the spirit when we're suffering, so do our minds, so do our thoughts need to flow from that self-control. Because if we're not careful, if we do not endeavor by God's grace to control our thoughts and control our mindsets, we can be just as unstable in that area as we can be in our emotions. Maybe you've experienced that before. Because of fear, you've had an unstable mind. You've had thoughts that were not under control. You had a mindset that was not healthy. Peter's saying, put that aside. Peter's urging us here to be sober-minded, to have a mindset that's not subject to distractions or discouragements or doubts, but a mindset that is focused clearly on the right things, that is properly discerning what you are experiencing in the light of God's divine providence and in the light of God's great and precious promises. There's great comfort and strength that comes with having a clear mind. Being able to look at your current circumstances and put them into context in terms of God's sovereignty and God's plan for your life. When our, when our minds are clouded with uncertainty, when our minds are distracted by doubts, when our minds are under assault from unbelief, we experience great difficulty in being steady and steadfast. And yet not only are fear and less than sober mindedness hindrance to controlling our emotions and our thoughts, but they also interfere with our ability to pray. Notice the link here. Our ability to pray effectively is influenced by our soberness of mind and our self-control. For James tells us in his epistle, James chapter 1, verses 6 and 8, we should ask in faith with no doubting. Think about how doubting you're expecting our prayers. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For such a person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Therefore, brethren, if we would stand together steadily and steadfastly, as Peter is urging us to do here in our text, Verse 7, we must have this self-control of mind and prayer in the way that we handle suffering and self-control and the way that we pray without doubt. Is it actually possible to live a self-controlled and sober-minded way in the midst of suffering? Is it really possible? It is. 
And again, Christ shows us the way. Where through Christ and His strength, you and I can endure suffering. We can endure abuse and opposition as Christ did without being controlled by fear, without being tossed to and fro. And we can wait patiently for our deliverance, for our final relief with a controlled mindset and a prayer life that is sober. A prayer life that is clear and properly focused on the things of God. Yes, we can do this. And Peter exhorts us to do this in our sense. That is to remain alert and steadfast in our hearts and minds. To live above the fear. To live above the mental uncertainty that suffering sometimes produces within us. If our emotions and thoughts are not controlled by the Holy Spirit. Oh, let us, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, for the sake of God's honor, for the sake of our own well-being, for the sake of our sanity, for the sake of our answered prayers, which we desire to see be self-controlled and sober-minded. For this is what God wants us to be and what God has called us to be as we wait faithfully for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be revealed and who shall be us. Then, beloved, in addition to urging us to steadiness and steadfastness and mind and prayer, Peter also urges us to keep up those responsibilities that we have towards one another. For just because we're suffering does not mean that we no longer have responsibilities towards one another. We have serious responsibilities toward one another. And the first responsibility is to persevere, to remain steady in our love for one another. In our love for one another. Notice what Peter says here in verse 8 of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. It says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And needless to say, these opening words here, notice the words above all, give this command and this responsibility that we have to love one another as God's people a sense of great importance. In fact, some have suggested that we can translate this of first importance, of first priority to the following. For when we consider the commands that Christ gave to his church, as his church was about to go out into the world to witness and to suffer for him, no other command related to our relationship to each other could be considered more important than this command to love. Whereas Jesus ministered to his disciples in the upper room, before his death on the cross, he declared to them, according to John chapter 13 and verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, new in the sense that it would be the distinguishing mark of those who belong to the New Testament church. That you love one another just as I have loved you, you also love one another, for by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Readers and for you and I to pursue and fulfill this duty to love one another above all, to love one another as a matter of first importance. The Apostle Peter is not only emphasizing our need for a visible, persevering love, but he's stressing how dependent we are 
on one another and why love between us is so essential. And how are we to love one another? Notice this. It's very practical. Notice in verse 8, we are to keep loving one another earnestly. Earnestly, meaning that there is to be an intensity. There is to be a fervency in our love for one another. In fact, maybe it would help to illustrate it with a word picture. Our love for one another could be like a flame that has been ignited by God and that is fed by the Spirit. Ignited by God and fed by the Spirit. Therefore, we are to keep loving one another, to be concerned about doing good for our brother and his reputation so fervently and intensely that we are not eager to do them bad, but we are eager to do them good. And notice this, Peter goes so far as to say that we are not eager to expose their weaknesses or their faults or to point out that which might cause them shame. But we are to be eager to forgive. We are to be eager to put behind us anything that would hurt or hinder our fellowship with our spiritual brethren. And, and how do we know that these are the kinds of interactions that Peter is calling us to have with believers? We know that these are the kinds of actions that are always appropriate for us, always mandatory for us to do. Because Peter reminds us here in verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 4 that love covers a multitude of sins. This needs to be repeated time and time again. Love between the brethren covers a multitude of sins. Of course, in writing these words, the Apostle Peter is simply quoting from the Old Testament book of Proverbs. From Proverbs 10, 12, to be exact, it states, hatred stirs up strife. But love covers all offenses. So this is what this means. Listen to character. For where there is a genuine, earnest, fervent, there is a desire to promote the good of our brother. Where there is genuine, earnest love, there is no desire to stir up strife. Where there is genuine, earnest love, there is no desire to weigh down another brother or sister in Christ with a load of guilt and shame. Where there is genuine, earnest love, there is the desire to actually bear one another's burdens. By the way, the idea of bearing one another's burdens means more than just knowing what their burdens are. It means bearing them. It means carrying another's burdens until those burdens are relieved. It certainly doesn't mean creating new burdens. Yes, where there is genuine earnest love within the church. Those who are suffering, those who are striving against sin, those who are sometimes failing repeatedly in the process of learning, find real and genuine compassion for others. They do not find regular condemnation. They find their offenses covered. 
They find that they are not ridiculed, that they are not exploited, that they are not used. They find fellow believers who desire to love them as Christ loved them and who want to comfort them along their path. For while we might not associate earnest love and our ability to remain steadfast in suffering together, the one is necessary for the other. In order to be steady and steadfast in this journey that we have, we all need the support and prayers of a loving Christian assembly. In fact, if you don't have a loving assembly, the chances are you will not stand up very The truth of the matter is you won't be very steadfast in the face of opposition and persecution. Therefore, Peter is wise to exhort us here in verse 8 of 1 Peter 4, to keep loving one another above all. To keep expressing as our main duty towards one another a love that is sincere and earnest and encouraging. Let me just say this. This is not in my notes. I want you to know that one thing that sustains me here as your pastor through the difficulties that we've all experienced and through the unique difficulties that I've experienced in my own life as a pastor is the fact that I know that I'm loved. That's right. And that you love me and that you pray for me. And that sustains me. And I know it sustains you as well. And I know that if I didn't have it, I wouldn't be doing as well. We all wish we were doing better. But I wouldn't be doing as well. Then not only are we to keep loving one another, but we are also to keep caring for one another. To keep caring for one, for one another without feeling put out, without feeling imposed upon to do so. Or notice what Peter says lastly here in verse 9 of our text. Show hospitality to one another. Hospitality is an expression of, of care, concern. Without Without Of course, this command is your hospitality should not take privacy. Think about the setting and the circumstances that many of Peter's readers would have found themselves placed in. They are a dispersed people that Peter are writing to, right? They are people who are persecuted, they're subjected to suffering for Christ's sake. Many of them have no place to go. They have no home. Turn to except to other believers in Jesus Christ for encouragement to local churches for help and support. In fact, these believers who were dispersed for this reason would have been completely dependent, at least for a season, upon the kindness and generosity of other believers for a place to stay or a meal to eat or for assistance to help them back on their feet. Peter doesn't. Fails that the forest readers here, their responsibility to display and demonstrate genuine care and hospitality toward those saints who are without. In fact, the Apostle John set forth the same duty we all possess as brothers and sisters in Christ in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. For in speaking of our obligation to demonstrate love for our brethren, which goes much Further than mere words, the Apostle John wrote these words. Again, 1 John 3, 16-18. By this we know love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, 
and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Piercing question. But one we all must answer. Little children, let us not love in word or talk only. Oh, that's so easy to do. It even sounds pious to love in word. But he goes on to say, love indeed and true. Needless to say, the same duty to show Christian hospitality as defined as our willingness to provide our brethren with what they need in a time of need is important not only to our witness as a church, but to the ones who receive from our generosity. For in times of difficulty, in times of suffering, there is nothing more encouraging than the hospitality of friends. Do you agree? Have you ever been in circumstances like those that Peter is describing? When all things lost, when things were so difficult, and yet because of the hospitality, the love, concern, the care of a Christian friend, you were greatly encouraged, greatly strengthened. There is no place warmer, there is no place more safe than a church body, a family that knows the meaning of Christian hospitality and they practice it openly for the glory of God. How are we to practice it towards one another? Notice that Peter states here, I mentioned this already at the end of verse 9, that we are to practice it without grumbling. Without grumbling. For the church or the believer who grumbles when they are presented with the opportunity to show hospitality to others is failing to see something. In fact, we should check our hearts. When God brings opportunities for us to help others, and we find ourselves grumbling about it, we need to ask ourselves, why? What is it that we need to remove? What obstacle is standing in the way? Namely, this person is failing to see that Peter's call to be truly hospitable is not only a test of our true compassion for others, but it's also an opportunity for us to be the means that God uses to minister to others. That's what's really happening as these incidents take place, where we have this opportunity to provide hospitality. God is giving us an opportunity for ministry. God wisely and deliberately uses other believers to meet our needs as we go about meeting the needs of others. That's how it works. That's how it works. In fact, we'll talk more about this, more about Christian ministry, Lord willing, next Sunday. But we should see Christian hospitality as a powerful means of ministry to others. We'll be speaking more about this in the future. But let me ask you this question. You don't have to answer it loud. I will do my very best to keep my eyes moving across the congregation and not settle on the <laughs> I've been told more than once that somebody thinks I'm looking at them the entire time. <laughs> so I'm going to keep my eyes moving. This. When is the last time I just want to, to, to stir you up a little bit? 
When is the last time you were involved in genuine Christian hospital? Genuine Christian hospital. Where you invited another Christian family into your home so you could minister to them, learn about them, find out how you could meet their needs. What a great ministry opportunity. What wonderful work transpires. When's the last time you've done that? You shouldn't even have to have a home to do it. You can take a brother out to lunch. I know you get the idea. Hospitality towards one another is so important. And doing it without grumbling is so very critical. Doing it without any consideration for the cost, without any consideration for the sacrifice that's involved, doing it without holding anything back. Well, brethren, maybe be a church where believers can come, be encouraged by our love and our hospitality, be steady for that. I believe with all my heart, believers in this city, in this county that we have yet to come into contact with. We could be greatly steadied by being exposed to this church and its ministry. Mm -hmm. We should pray for that. That we should steady many for the battle. May we show what it means to be self-controlled and sober-minded when it comes to accomplishing what God has called us to do. May we keep loving one another as we have been. May we perform that ministry that God has given us to do without grumbling. Without complaining, what right do we have to crumble? What right do we have to complain when we have been the recipients of God's goodness and grace? Oh, how can our gratitude to God not lead us to give ourselves to others, to give our good to others when Christ gave so lovingly to us? May God impress these practical duties here in verses 7 through 9, into our hearts and minds, and may we, with self-control, with sober-mindedness, and loving, caring, and hospitable spirits, express the love of Jesus Christ. And may the love of the Spirit of God moving within us spread abroad within our hearts. Let's Our God and Father, thank you so much for this today. For though it is brief, just a mere three verses, is so practical and so full of wisdom, instruction, and encouragement. And I pray that we would hear your word today and respond to it in the manner that you would have us to Give us grace. To be steady and steadfast in all the ways that have been mentioned here today. Give us the grace to be sober minded, to be clear minded, to have fervent love for others, to desire to show hospitality without grumbling. These are the things that this church needs. These are the things that this community needs. These are the things that all of us need to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please bless us and help us not to just hear these words today and let them fade away, but help us to put them into shoe leather. Help us to 
put them into action in such a way that Jesus Christ is honored and this church prospers by your grace and by your strength. Help us today. And if there's anybody here today outside of grace who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, may you grant them faith and repentance today. May you draw them close to yourself and your spirit. May they see the beauty of Jesus Christ, repent of their sins, and follow hard after them for life. Bless us today in all these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.